We've been a bit of it on a journey, and there's a lot of unanswered questions, but five themes as we have thought about, five big topics that we have thought about. If Jesus is risen from the dead, and our Christian hope, what's it like? What are we, what are we looking forward to? And we come now to, just to think about that final judgment, that final reckoning uh, before the new heavens and the new earth, uh, whenever the world is at peace. We want to hear God's word. The title of today's theme, as uh, I planned it, was the final judgment. In one sense, if what has gone wrong with Genesis 3 as in the fall of this broken world when sin and death came into the world. Uh, something has to be dealt with that if you're going to end up in a new creation. There's many things that we could talk about uh, that this morning. There, there's a number of issues to do with the final judgment and what it means for believers and unbelievers. But I've just taken one theme aspect of, of, of it this morning to us as a church. And so I'm going to ask... Tracy, if she would come and read to us, first of all, from Luke chapter 19, which you will follow on page 1053. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 19, beginning to read at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said... A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in the very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own word, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they replied, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Then we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at um, verse 10, and you'll find that on page 1146 of your Pew Bibles.
By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one of you should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds in this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Some of you went to university. Some of you need to dream about going to university here. You worked for four years. I had to work for four years. Went to Scottish university, so you do four years. And there comes the final exams. And your four years and your degree is dependent on how you do in these final exams. So you sit your exams. Then you have to wait for the results to be posted up on the notice board, or maybe they don't do that anymore now, maybe they, they, they give it out secretly. But maybe a week or so later, the examiners have met, they've marked your papers, and they've said, you have passed. Yes. And then you have to wait maybe a month or so for graduation. The graduation ceremony is that great moment when all those years of work now result in a new exciting step. You have your photo taken, you dress up, you've got your academic hood on, you have your refreshments that you'll have, your family and friends are there, and you receive your certificate that, gives, that says to you, this is your degree, this is your master's, this is your PhD, whatever qualification you have, this is the proof. And you celebrate. So you passed your exams, you passed, but then you have that graduation ceremony when it's publicly declared to everyone that you have passed. When we die, we go to be with the Lord. We go to the present heaven. we with the Lord forever. In one sense, you've passed the exam. The battle is over. When Jesus returns, all creation will bow before him as Lord and King. It's the believer's graduation ceremony. It's the victory march. It's the celebration of being uh, on his side, the one who is the conqueror of life and, and death. And we are counted as his own. So there's a difference between these two events and sometimes we can get mixed up about what is happening now and what is happening then. It's clear in our Bible that everyone will appear before the king. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Revelation 22 verse 12, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone <clears throat> according to what he has done. So what are we appearing for then? <clears throat> What kind of judgment is this of believers? Because we have already gone to be with the Lord, uh, the, Jesus implies that the choices we make in this life determine 
the realms, the, the, the destinies after this life. So what is this final judgment for us as believers and for others? In both these passages, it says it is a judgment over the things that we have done. It's a judgment of works, our actions. And there will be judgments and a verdict and a degree of punishment or degrees of reward. It's not a judgment to decide whether you will get eternal life. It's a judgment to decide what your reward will be as a Christian or what your punishment will be as an unbeliever. So there are degrees of reward throughout the Bible implied. So Matthew chapter 5, 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Seems to be that there are some in heaven who will be called great and some in heaven who will be least. These are Christians, they are in heaven, but there are degrees of reward according to their faithfulness. The Bible doesn't talk much about this because it's not the focus, but there seems to be degrees of punishment. So Matthew chapter 11 but I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus has been doing his miracles in Capernaum. And they refuse to have faith in Jesus the Messiah. And therefore Jesus says, you don't, just not rejected me. But you have been given a, a greater witness, a greater truth, a greater demonstration of God's power. Therefore, your punishment will be greater than what is coming on Sodom and Gomorrah for their refusal hundreds of years earlier to believe the truth about who God is. So there are some passages that imply that there are degrees of punishment uh, as well according to people and how they have lived. People do not like to talk about hell or the fact that God has a day, a final judgment. Uh, if God is a God of love, then surely he will love people uh, and he, he's, not, he's not a vindictive God. But you talk to the same people who don't believe that there's a hell and you say, well, what about the Hitler and the great monsters who have ruled our world? Do you think they should walk into heaven? Oh, no, no, they should get what's coming to them because they, especially if they got away with it in this life. Um, and some people uh, realize that actually we need a, a doctrine of, of hell, of punishment, a final judgment to make sense of God as a God of love and justice in those who have been mistreated and got away with it in, in this life. There seems to be passages that on the day of judgment there will be differences of punishment according uh, it's, it's for people as well 
in the same way that there will be degrees of reward. And that is the point that I just want to talk about this morning as we share from two passages. First of all, from Luke 19. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And the context is important because people think that as the Messiah, this is the day when God will take back his country for himself. The Messiah will be crowned king in Jerusalem and all his enemies will be defeated. And all those prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament, they will come true now. There will be peace, shalom. God's kingdom will come back on earth again through the Messiah because the Messiah was the one who was going to make it happen. And so that's the great thing about Jesus' triumphal entry. But he gives this parable right before his triumphal entry. While they were listening to this, because he was near Jerusalem and people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear now at once, he tells them this parable. It's a parable about a king who goes away and leaves his servants in charge. And then he's going to come back and give an account of, from his servants. Each servant is given one mina. It's just a gold coin. And so the question is, what does this mina mean? What does this gold round represent uh, for those who are his servants, who have been left in charge with something as he, the king, has gone away? Jesus is saying, the kingdom is not going to come now. I am going to go away. And when I come back, the kingdom will fully come in my kingdom. But while I'm away, I, I leave you with a task, a responsibility represented by this gold coin, this one mina, which is about three months' wages, given to each of these ten servants. We only read about three of them, um, but they are representative of the differences of how people have used what that mina represents. Some have suggested the mina is the Holy Spirit, or believers are given the Holy Spirit. Some think it symbolizes the gospel message, Still others suggest that it stands for any sort of talent, gift, or endowment that all of us have been given that we might hold uh, and trust and use for God's glory. And the answer is, I suppose, it could be any of these things. It's what Jesus has left us to do for his kingdom and his glory while he's returned to heaven and until he comes back. He's left us with a task. He's left us with an opportunity for service with whatever he has given to us, and he will come back and say, how did you get on? How were you able to use for my glory what I left you with? And so he comes back. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. And here's the reward. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in very small matters, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. The master answered, you take charge of five cities. So there are rewards for what was left with them, according to how they have used it to the master's glory. It's his money. Your mina has earned five more. So... It's not their minus now to hold. It's, it's 
They've used it for the master's glory. It's his, he's got five now from one, he's got ten from another. And he rewards them with responsibilities because of their faithfulness in using what is his that he has entrusted to them. Clearly in this parable there are two groups of people. There are those subjects who reject his kingship, who do not want him to be king, but he is made king anyway. There are those people in the world today who will not accept Jesus as Lord and the King of Kings. But he will return one day and he will be proclaimed king of this world. Jesus says in the parable that he will judge those who do not want him to be king because they wanted to rule their own lives. They didn't want to have his authority over them. So there are the subjects, one group, and then in Jesus' parable there are the servants who live under his kingship as the master. But there are two responses here. There are those who... One who earned 10 more minus, one who earned five more, and then there's the one who was so afraid uh, that he hid it in the ground. The parable is a warning that those who, only those who are participants win the prize. There is a wicked servant. But interestingly, the wicked servant does not end up with the same punishment as the rebellious subjects. He simply has no reward, and even what he has is taken away. But he's not punished in the same way as the the other people are, but he has no reward. Jesus is encouraging us in this parable that those who are rewarded are those who have used what has been entrusted, entrusted to them, whatever it may be. And then we come to this interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. No one may can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation, Jesus Christ, he builds on Jesus using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day, it's a capital day, it's the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus comes back, that day of his return will bring it to light. In the ancient world, people would have built their temples and palaces with gold, silver, and costly stones. But most homes were built from wood, hay, and stubble because it was cheaper. But when fire broke out in buildings built with wood, hay, and stubble, they would have been completely destroyed. Whereas the buildings that were built with gold, Silver or costly stones would survive because these costly materials were not easily burned. So Paul takes these well-known facts about the durability of various building materials and uses them to illustrate the value of a Christian's commitment. At the end of the day, this day of Jesus' reckoning, this This day when we all appear before him, he will have an assessment of the way that we have lived our lives and our decisions as followers of Jesus Christ. Here is the challenge to those who think, I am a Christian, I'm going to heaven, so it doesn't matter what I do, because God will just just ask forgiveness and he'll forgive me. Everything in this life has repercussions for his glory and for our reward. Christians and non-Christians alike will stand before his judgment seat. But Paul is not teaching here salvation by works. He's teaching here about 
reward. He's telling us about Christians. He said already, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's writing to, G to Christians, he's writing to believers who have made Jesus the foundation of their life. His glory, what their life's about. His salvation. Uh, they follow Jesus. They proclaim him to be Lord. They're facing persecution in the world because they have taken the name of Jesus. And he is challenging them. It's not just what you believe and it's what, what your hope is of eternal life, but actually it's how you build on this foundation. Some of us are building our lives equivalent to building Homes and buildings made of gold, silver, and precious stones. Other Christians are living their lives as if they are building a house with wood, hay, or stubble. And when the day, the day of Jesus' return comes, and that evaluation comes, nothing of any value can be used to receive the rewards uh, that God is giving. Only the things that are of value will, will, will stand the fire of his judgment. So he's using fire as an imagery there of, of the way things are burned up. But if you have built poorly on Jesus, you will have nothing the other side of that fire because you have built poorly. Verse 14, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the, 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 the flames. Christians will still get into heaven. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping himself through the flames. But he will have nothing of value that will be rewarded the other side of that day of Jesus' return. So we're asking the question, therefore, what does gold, silver, and precious stone represent in our lives? And what does represented by uh, hay and wood and stubble and straw that is actually of no value? How do we build with precious stones? Surely these are the actions that flow from trust in God. These are our words and our character that are aligned to Jesus' kingdom priorities. They are anything that we do to advance God's purposes in the world. So it doesn't have to be specifically evangelistic. You don't have to go out onto the street here and stand on a box and tell people uh, of how great Jesus is and, and what's happening in the future. Uh, that's not necessarily uh, gold, silver and, and straw. It, it, it covers anything from missionary work to politics. It's anything that we do that is motivated for someone's good. Ultimately, to build with God is bringing people into the fellowship with God and helping them in their fellowship with God. So don't think that I have a head start on you because I'm a minister and my job is telling people about Jesus. Here's what I'm faced with in James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Don't we judge the actions of an eight-year-old differently from the actions of a 38-year-old? Or someone who has full health with someone whose life is limited? Or the work of a nurse from that of a builder? 
The experience that these jobs give, the age that we are at, uh, means that we evaluate, under circumstances, people differently. We judge people differently because of their experiences and responsibilities, and also because some people are expected to know better. So we who teach should know a lot better than you who we are teaching to. So we will be judged more strictly. Paul is teaching us that there are different degrees of reward according to what has been entrusted to us. We have been given talents and gifts and opportunities and ministry and witness and service and they'll all be subject to some kind of assessment by the Lord at his coming. Insofar as we have proved to be good and faithful servants about what we have been given, we will receive an appropriate reward. In all this, we begin as equals. Whether you are a president or a Chinese rice farmer, whether you are Bill Gates or an office cleaner, we all begin as equals with what has been given to us and how we have used and been faithful in what that miner, that gold coin, represents to every believer, every servant that has been given. It's not what you do. It's what you do with what you've got that Jesus is looking for. God is the just judge and everyone's work will be judged fairly. In August, I had lunch with some people. They shared the joy of a man almost near retirement who had recently become a Christian. His wife had been praying for him for many years. He's worked all his life and almost near retirement, he became a wonderful, joyous Christian. After many years of searching, questioning, arguing about faith, he made Jesus his king, and he just felt the significance of being counted as a child of the Lord of the universe. He immediately shared his newfound faith with his work colleagues, where he had been working for decades. He said to someone, one of them, I, I became a Christian. Oh, so am I. Said to someone else, I became a Christian, so am I. Six people he found he worked with who he never knew, who admitted they were Christians once he shared his faith with them. And he just can't understand it. Why did they never tell me? How could they have remained so silent about the good news of Jesus? Why did they never even hint that Sunday worship was a part of the rhythm of their life? How different from the 2003 rugby World Cup match between South Africa and Samoa. The end of that World Cup match, the players came out, they hugged each other, they embraced each other as competitors on the field. Some of them began to swap shirts. They stood each other in a circle, all mixed up, arms, linking arms. And then the two teams got down on their knees and they prayed together. It doesn't have to do much to declare, I'm a follower of the king. One of my university lectures told a story that I've never forgotten about an office cleaner in a very prestigious, wealthy company. Her job began when the office closed and all these rich executives and money people had all gone home and she would come in and work the night cleaning the offices and so that by the time that they arrived the next morning, she was gone and the office was clean. So she never met 
any of the people who worked in these offices. She was a lovely Christian woman who loved God and lived with the joy of knowing that she was his child and thankful for the job that he had given to her as an office cleaner. And soon after she began this cleaning job, she began to notice how some of the staff left their desks after a day's work. Some were tidied, some were a mess. And she sensed that that certain people were under a great deal of stress. I'm not sure whether you can do this now, but she started to leave messages on these desks of these workers. Something like, I think you're under a lot of pressure at work. I pray that God will give you wisdom today and the important decisions you are to make. Psalm 118 verse 6, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. She would see a photo on another desk of a man and his wife and family and she felt compelled to write a note. You're a blessed man, you have a beautiful wife and God has given you three beautiful children. God has been good to you. This did not happen every night, but as the notes appeared, the office staff started to ask each other, who's leaving these notes? And it took them several months to work out that it was the cleaning lady who came in after they had all left for the night. One night she arrived to clean the offices as usual, to begin her night's work and find herself in the middle of a surprise party. The whole office had arranged a night where they all stayed late to meet this lady who had been such a blessing to them. There was food and drinks, and one by one they had the opportunity to meet this Christian woman. My name is Jim. I sit over there. Thank you for your words that saved my marriage. My name is Margaret. Your messages helped me through a most stressful time in my life. My name is Joseph. I was brought up in a Christian home, but when I came to this city, my Christian faith was not important to me, but your note brought me back to God and his ways. Now my life has perspective and meaning. I'm happy with myself. My life is better. Thank you. The party finished. The office went home. The lady began to clean the offices as she did every night. Her notes continued, but as she felt a need to write, but now she knew their names and they knew her. Whatever our minor is, whatever God has given to us, wherever he has placed us, We are there to be used for God's glory, to bring his peace and his character and his love and forgiveness and hope through our lives to those that we share our work with or to do our job to God's glory by the best of our ability. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says at the end of Revelation. My reward is with me. And I will give, I will reward everyone according to what they have done. Here is our motivation for service. Not just to idly walk into heaven and live this life as if, let's make the most of it. But with that eternal focus and with the joy of Jesus' love because he died our death and he's risen forevermore. Then there's a great celebration, a great graduation day, a great Victory triumph, when evil will finally defeat it, when this broken world will be healed and God will reward those who have been faithful to what he has given to them. So part of our journey as a congregation, as we read his word, 
is to find out what it means to be his disciple for where we are, whatever stage we are at now. Whether it's school or work, retirement, every stage of life, we are to use what God has given to us for his glory. To pray about that, of how he might use us, how to share him in any way we can. Let us pray. Father, you have given every one of us a situation and resources that we are called to enjoy, but also to use in any way that we can, because ultimately everything we have is a gift from you. So Lord, help us to discover what it means to be your disciple. Wherever we are at and whatever we are doing, wherever we find ourselves at this time, Help us to know the leading of your spirit as we seek, Lord, to give the glory that is due to your name. It's not about us. You are the great king. We are your servants. And you reward those who bring glory to you. Man's chief end is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Lord, may your spirit continue to work as we think about these things in our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.